Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Harrington as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 20 as we continue our journey through this book As we talk about the rejected stone, how would you feel as you're turning to Luke chapter 20? How would you feel if 248 uh, times you were rejected by an employer? How many of you probably would say about after 250, you might just stop looking? Well, this is a story of a man named Dwight Clark. Many of you may know is a San Francisco 49ers. He was uh, drafted by them in 1979, uh, wide receiver. Overall, he was uh, uh, picked number 259 all the way down in the 10th round. He played for about 10 years, and uh, he was the only team that he ever played for was the 49ers. But during his career, he had had some really great passes. He had 506 passes for almost 7,000 yards. He caught 48 touchdown passes, including what many would call the greatest. It's called the catch when he caught one to win a Super Bowl. He had won some um, advanced, he won two Super Bowls, an all-pro to- all team uh, the years he was there, but he was rejected 248 times before he was finally chosen by some. Many of those chosen before him never went, nevertheless ever won a Super Bowl. So what we see is that many times being rejected does not tell you all the story. And with that, we are looking in Luke. And last week we saw that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the political leaders, were challenging Jesus' authority to teach, to preach, and the miracles he was doing. Their jealousy and their pride kept them from accepting his message and his ministry. They refused to accept him as that final final, uh, promised prophet, priest, and king. They refused to acknowledge his claim to be the Messiah, the anointed one of the Lord, as well as the divine son of God. In their view, their only option was to silence Jesus through death. We examine how Jesus' authority comes not only from his identity as the son of man and the son of God, But it comes from the Father who sent him to redeem the children of God, including us. In doing so, we recognize that Jesus has left us the scriptures as our authority today to teach and preach and to lead us in the godly life. And we talked about how many times people would ask us, by what authority do you say these things? Do you live this way? Do you vote this way? And we need to refer back to scripture. Because of this, we need to understand that even today, when people still ask, by what authority do you do these things? And we must be ready to give an answer to them as Jesus, in this case, was ready to give them an answer, but they refused to answer his question for the hope that we have in Christ. Now, as we come to chapter 20, verses 9 through 18, Jesus responds to the religious leaders who challenge his authority by telling them a proverb. That warms them of the repercussions that comes with rejecting the Messiah. Now remember, parables are just simple stories with a single point that leads them to a simple truth. 
This parable was an illustration that was taken from everyday life, as stories typically are, uh, and that Jesus was using to make a point. It was, a, it was to call those who were listening to it to respond to what he was teaching. Parables were a way of a telling the story that calls for a response. And even today, as you and I read this, we're not the uh, original audience. However, as it's been passed through and inspired by God, you today are going to be called to make a response to this parable even so. The key to understand the parable lies in discovering the original audience to whom they was spoken to. So we're going to do that work today. In this case, Jesus, as you can imagine, was sitting uh, and surrounded by the followers in the temple, listening to his teaching. The religious leaders interrupt his teaching to challenge that authority. We saw that last week. And since they could not answer Jesus' question about John the Baptist and the authority of his, his ministry, <clears throat> Jesus refused to answer their questions. Instead, he begins to tell them this parable. With that, it's in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 15a. Uh, and we're gonna, it's up here on the monitor, but again, I encourage you to bring your Bibles and turn to it. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. <coughs> Excuse me, and a plant or a man planted a vineyard and he let it out to tenants and he went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him out empty handed. So he sent a third. Yet this one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? You can imagine. I will send my beloved son. This comes to be his answer. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant, tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Father, give us wisdom. This is a, a story that uh, has been preserved for us. And it's profitable to teach us what's right, teach us what is wrong to correct our behavior when we have wrong thinking or wrong feelings or wrong actions, choices. And to help us then to know how we can live rightly. And so, Father, help us as we work through this. Let us not just listen and then neglect its teaching, but that we may respond much differently as we're going to see the religious leaders, that our hearts may be tender and your spirit may have free reign. In your name we pray. Amen. This story is a simple but shocking tale that has severe consequences. The parable consists of rejection as well as treason and mutiny between an owner of a vineyard and its workers. The owner takes a piece of land and he intends to grow grapes. As the custom is then, he would then hire farmers to tend the field. And many times, those farmers would live on the land itself, the word tenant, to make it easier to tend the field. And we can think of that. My, my grandparents were tenant farmers. They, they moved around the, 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 the south during the early 1900s, and that's what they did. They were tenant farmers, migrant farmers who, who did strawberries and cotton and all sorts of things. And many times, they would live in a little place there on the land. Now, the tenants, though, in the sense... They don't own the land. They don't own the vineyard. They're just living there for uh, rent-free. Typically, that was part of their wages, and then they would also be paid wages. 
So he leaves now, the owner leaves the country, and he's satisfied in his investment that it's in good hands. He hired good people who are going to take, out, take over. However, the tenants begin to covet the land. Greed reaches in their heart and the produce. In other words, they start thinking, you know, why are we just working in this hot sun? You know, breaking our backs so that someone else can benefit from our hard work. We hear many of the same things today in all sorts of commerce even today in our world. And so their, their greed and their jealousy produced in them a murderous, hateful heart. In their view, they worked the land. They tended to the crops. They deserved more than just shelter and just fair wages. So as the owner sends his representatives after some time to collect some of his investment, his grapes, so he could make wine or whatever he may do with it and sell it, the farmers treated them harshly, sending them away empty-handed with just a beating for their troubles. Three times we read that they rejected the owner's overture to receive what is duly and rightfully his. Eventually, the owner, trying to figure out what to do, how can I get my investment back, these people are out of control, comes with up with the idea of sending his son, thinking that they will respect his position and his identity. This is the owner's son. However, they realize that they now have an opportunity to get rid of another obstacle in taking possession of the land, and they murder him. So for them, they don't care what the son's position is, his identity, and his authority. And though this is just a fictional story, this parable gets to heart of all men, all of humanity. They desire to satisfy every craving, appetite, and passion that we have. Scripture informs us that the heart is desperately wicked, and that everyone does what is right in their own eyes. What is interesting is that the actions of the tenant farmers is not what shocks the religious leaders and Jesus' followers and those that are hearing them. They probably can, 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 can uh, uh, you know, they're probably more on the side of the tenant farmers. And this is not what shocks them or disturbs them or angers the religious leaders and, and the crowds. They, they don't really care about that so much. It is the response of the owner to the rejection of the authority and the murder of his son. It is the response, I'm sorry, it is the response of the owner to the rejection. So it's how the owner responds when they kill his son that actually shocks them. Look at it with me at verse 15, that second part, verse B. Jesus tells the story, and then he turns to the crowd and the religious leaders, and he asks this question. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Just a simple question. What should the vineyard owner do? Now, you and I might answer this question in a lot of different ways. Maybe he needs to send a mediator. Maybe if they were unionized, this wouldn't have happened. Maybe if the owner would just let them have the produce of that, or maybe he can do something different. Though some of you might say, well, I think he ought to go on there and just burn the lot of them out. But this is what shocks and disturbs them. For Jesus then answers that question. He says, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard 
to others. Now, to you and I, that sounds like justice. That these people are wrong. But look what it says. When they heard this, they said what? Surely not. Surely the vineyard owner would not do this. Why would he go to such drastic measures? So to answer that question to help understand why they are shocked at this, when you and I are saying, yeah, I think that's probably the right thing to do, I want to break down the parable. This parable serves really, as you and I come to it, this is why it's important to understand the original audience, is that it's a metaphor for the history of Israel. So you'll see it here on the screen already. It looks like we have it up there. Is that when we break it down, now this doesn't always happen with all parables, but this one it does well. The landowner is God. God owns all things. Everything is his. The vineyard is the kingdom of God or Israel. So they understand that Jesus is telling a parable about Israel. The tenants are the religious and political leaders of the nation. They're the ones who mediate and run the country on behalf of God. They are in charge of faithfully stewarding it. The servants are the prophets that have suffered through all of the Old Testament history. We think of Jeremiah, Isaiah, some of the others that were martyred and beaten and thrown in pits, those who were neglected, those who were ignored. Jesus is saying, I have sent you some men, some representatives, but you have mistreated them. But then we see, as which clearly comes to us as today, as we hindsight is 2020, is that we can clearly see that the owner's son is Jesus Christ himself, who is rejected, beaten, and killed. Now, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5, if you would. Isaiah chapter 5. And this will help us make the parable a little bit more clear to us and what's going on, why they're shocked at this parable. Why is it that they're disturbed with Jesus' answer? So very clearly, Jesus, while you're turning there, very clearly Jesus is pointing out that, that, um, that he is the son of Yahweh, the owner of all things. And that by rejecting his authority, which would they have done, they have callously rejected Yahweh himself. And so again, right, right? You, if you're rejecting his representatives, if you're rejecting his son, you're, you're, you're rejecting uh, the, the authority and the identity of Yahweh himself, of God himself. They may believe that by, by rejecting Jesus, they are cementing their position, or position as caretakers of the city and of the temple and of the land. Remember, that was their fear, that because of Jesus, they would lose their influence, they would learn, lose their responsibility, and that the Romans may actually come and take away those things. However, what they don't recognize is that their attitude and actions will actually cause them to be severely punished. To understand the proverb, it's, it's helpful to quickly review the, the history and purpose of the nation of Israel. Remember, uh, the promise, uh, the, the gracious call and promise of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he promises them many children, he promises them a land and, he, and a blessing to Canaan, however, that they travel throughout their lifetimes as nomads, never owning a portion of land except for a place to bury their dead, a cave. Abraham, Isaac, and, I, and Jacob, they traveled the whole time and never had a piece of land. They lived in tents their whole life, moving from one spot to another, knowing that this was the land that God was giving them. 
but yet never owning it. The journey to, to Egypt to escape the famine. Then we see the miraculous delivery out of slavery and out of Egypt. The giving of the law, the penalty of wandering in the desert for 40 years. And then finally we come to Joshua and the exciting victories in, in Canaan and the land of promise where they finally acquire that which Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never owned. We see the cycle of rebellion and sin and oppression and judges. We see the rising of David as the king and the unification of the 12 tribes in that land. And then we get, as we get to, to the early parts of the Old Testament or the middle parts, we see the splendor of Solomon's reign as the temple is built. The walls are enhanced and the, and the, and the 12 tribes are not only unified, but now their borders begin to increase and the influence becomes almost worldwide at that time of that known world. And so here they are, finally reaping the blessings given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds and centuries of years prior. However, as you and I know, they once again get into a cycle of rebellion against God. They have a descent into wickedness, and they abandon Yahweh's kingdom. We then see the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the kingdom as they are now uh, cast away and put into different lands. Eventually, as we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, we see the return of the Hebrew children, the rebuilding of the walls, the rebuilding of the temple. And then as you and I come to Malachi, the end of our Old Testament, before we get into Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. Yahweh goes silent. He does not send them a word. He does not send them a prophet. He does not speak to them. The conquest, occupation, and oppression of Israel by four consecutive empires happens during that time. There is no splendor of the Solomon temple, of the Solomon kingdom. There is no David to rise up like he did against the Philistines and defeat the enemy. The promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are far from their mind, but yet close in their heart as they desire it, but yet they cannot see it happening but in there during those dark days there's a sliver of light that breaks through as we open up the books of the gospel and we see the birth and arrival of john the baptist who prepares the way and then again the miraculous appearing of jesus christ who for three years begins to travel and brings the good news of the kingdom so as we're looking at that these people are desiring the return of Solomon's reign. And this parable, as we look at this parable of the vineyard, it alludes to Isaiah chapter 5, and we're going to read the first seven verses there in a moment, but also Psalms 80 that Landon read to us earlier where it says, restore us, that was restore to us that which is lost. In reading Isaiah chapter 5, we're starting verse 1. The prophet says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. So what we're seeing, Yahweh is, is now alluding to Israel, but he's comparing it to a vineyard. My beloved, speaking of God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and he planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. So he's given us a picture of what we're seeing here in the parable. Yahweh 
is planting a fertile ground. That's Israel. He's put vines in it. That's the children of Israel. And he's desiring grapes so he may taste of it. But yet what we see, it yielded what? Wild grapes. No good. Sour. Good for nothing. But he goes on and says, Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and the vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I had sent prophets. I, I had sent people to tend to it, but yet it is not producing that which I desire. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild, wild grapes? And none. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. Why? Because it did not produce that which I intended it for. I will also command the clouds, he goes on, that the rain no longer rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, now he tells us, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold, he found what? Bloodshed. For righteousness he looked, but behold, an outcry. Jesus is given a story that was really first given to Isaiah. They may cry out for restoration of Israel, but only according to their wishes and their demands. God is to meet their expectations to do things the way they want him to do in their covetousness and their greed and their jealousy and their hatred. They want the things that they want. God sends his son. However, Jesus' message of the kingdom and his ministry of releasing and giving liberty to those that are captives are not what they anticipate. So instead, they desire to kill him. Now, through this parable, Jesus is warning them that God, that Yahweh will pronounce judgment against them for their rejection of his son and replace them as the heirs of the kingdom. So two solutions for the parable. What will the owner do? He will judge them and he will replace them. Same thing that we're seeing here in Isaiah. You see, if you reject the owner, if you reject his prophets and his leaders, if you reject his son, he will judge and replace. They are no longer the heirs of the kingdom of God. Thinking that they now will be the heirs, they lose all claim to it. Of course, they are offended by this parable, hence why they say, surely not. They're they're, they're offended. Why? Because they immediately recognize that Jesus is speaking not only to them, but of them. In other words, he's saying, you are the tenants. You are the guilty one. You are deserving of judgment and replacement. In essence, they're crying out, surely not. Yahweh would never abandon us. But in response, when they say that, Jesus responds, going back to Luke chapter 20, if you would please. 
Look back at Luke chapter 20. How does Jesus respond when they, they say, surely not, there is no way that Yahweh would ever treat us that way. Jesus quotes scripture in verse 17, chapter 20. But he looked directly at them. But he wants to make no mistake. He's, he's making eye contact. Look at me. I've got something serious, important to say. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, and speaking of the cornerstone is that in which someone is building a building. It's that stone that becomes right in the middle, not in the middle, but right at the corner where, where the first two boards are going to come together. And it's that which is going to hold the building. You need something that's going to hold a cornerstone was in those days when you would build a house out of stone or brick. You would, you would have one stone that may be bigger than the other that's going to hold it all up. He says that stone which people are looking at and been rejected, that's actually going to be taken by God and we're going to make it the chief stone, the most important. He goes on to say everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. That's how powerful, how, how resilient, how hard that stone will be. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Hence why my story about Dwight Clark in the beginning. Rejected by 400 and something teams, he winds up beating the teams that rejected him as a wide receiver. And so in this case, Jesus is teaching them, I am that cornerstone. In other words, listen to here. I want you to get this. I'll probably say it a little bit later. But you reject Jesus at your pearl. To reject Jesus is a very serious thing. This is a quote as we read about this. Everyone who falls in the stone, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a quote from Psalms 118. Jesus is asking him, what is it that this passage means? When David writes this, what does he mean? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, initially it referred to King David. And the rejection of those nations around him, the Philistines and so those that reject King David and the, and the throne of David and the kingdom of, of Israel, uh, David will crush them. If you come against them, you will be broken into pieces. But now it's appropriated to Christ. In other words, Psalm 18 initially was about David, but overall it was about Jesus Christ, the son of God who would be rejected by his own people. If you were to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 4, if you can do that very quickly with me. Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders' rejection of Jesus' kingdom is going to cause them to lose it all. In other words, they may, they may find an excuse to arrest Jesus and then brutally torture him and then kill him, and in essence, they think, now we have it back all to ourselves. However, in three days, we'll see that that stone will rise again. They think that they've won it, but they've lost it. This becomes even clearer as the Apostle Paul inter interprets for us that passage in, in uh, Psalms in Acts chapter 4. Are you there? Verse 8. 
Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, Peter and James and John, as disciples, they had healed a crippled man, and so they are brought before these same religious leaders that rejected Jesus and said, By whose authority are you doing this? Peter is simply saying, if you're examining us, understand, trying to understand this, by what means this man has been healed, look at verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's not by our authority. It's not by some physiology that we understand that you don't know. It is only by the power of the Son of God, the man that you rejected and crucified. You thought you shut him up, but he rose on the third day. This Jesus, verse 11, he now marries it to Psalms. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. Reject Jesus at your own peril. Here, Jesus declares that he's going to be rejected by his own. Jesus declares that he will judge those who rejected him. In other words, the religious leaders will no longer be responsible for mediating God's authority because they're not producing fruit. They will be replaced in other words, Jesus is declaring that the kingdom of God is going to be given over to those outside of Israel. I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to replace you. You no longer will be mediating the kingdom of God because you have, you have, you have not been faithful. Your greed, your jealousy, your anger, your desire, your appetites, because of it, you are rejected by me. And this is what exactly happened. The Holy Spirit writes in Scripture, you'll see it here in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who was given the promises, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law? Why? Why is there a replacement? Why did the Gentiles attain that which was supposed to be for the Jews. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, by confidently trusting in the person of God. But as if it were based on works. All they tried to do was try to do some of the law, but we know that when we try to live by the law, we will die by the law. He goes on and says that they have stumbled over a stumbling stone. What was that stumbling stone? Then he quotes Psalms. Behold, I'm lying in Zion, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put in shame. But what does Paul tell us in Corinthians? That the Jews stumble, right? They stumble over the offense of the cross. The Greeks, the Gentiles, they think it's foolishness, but it's a stone that causes them to stumble. They cannot. Why is it today that Jews today still reject Jesus? Because Jesus is a stumbling stone. They can't get past it. They can't step over it. They can't step on it. They can't step around it. They may try to do those things, but in the end, they're either crushed because it falls over them, or they're crushed when they fall on it. 
Now, as we consider this passage and rejection of Jesus by Israel, it brings us to realize the importance of accepting Jesus and his offer of the kingdom of God. Our prayer here is that all who hears the word, hear the words of Jesus are to repent and to take up our cross and follow him. And I pray that you have done so. I pray that all who may watch this and listen to this at another time may do so. Please, may you see that Jesus has the authority of the Father. And that is because of him that you and I are given not only the righteousness of Christ, but also are, made, uh, are declared right by God. Forgiveness of our sins. We must accept him. Life is not, about, is not about finding the right philosophy, the right religion, or the right experience. It's not those things that give us the answers that we search for. The claims that Jesus was Messiah, the, the Christ, are exclusive. There is only one way to Christ. There is no other way. It is his way or the highway, as someone might say. In John chapter 11, see here on the monitor, Jesus boldly proclaimed, I am the resurrection life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Whoever accepts this stone, whoever accepts the son of the owner of all things will have life. There is no life in any other. People can claim that there are different ways to God or other ways to find fulfillment and peace. But scripture does not give us those choices. As Peter preaches in Acts chapter 4, there is, no, there is salvation in no other name, in no one else. Unfortunately, as you and I come back to Luke, the Pharisees realized that the parable was about them. They were going to be rejected and replaced. But instead of convicting their hearts, it hardened them. In Luke chapter 20, verse 19, if you're still there in Luke, we're going to look more at this next week. But I want to close as we look at how they responded. In Luke chapter 20, verse 19, we read, The scribes and the chief priests, after hearing this and understanding what the parable was, sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. <laughs> For they perceived that he had told this parable against him, but they feared the people, proving themselves that they were the tenants with a bloodthirsty desire for that which did not belong to them. And in it, they would lose everything. May I get ready to close here soon with this verse? And this encouragement, please do not let your heart be hardened against the sun, against the stone, against Jesus Christ. The psalmist sings, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who find refuge in him. 
You see, that stone can either be a stone, a steady stone, a rock that you and I can hold on to, that can be a cleft for us, that can be a sturdy anchor for us, or it could be the very anchor that causes our demise as it falls and crushes us, our dreams and aspirations that are outside of God. Let us rejoice as we are recipients of the kingdom of God. Our inclusion into the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a fulfillment of Daniel's dream in uh, in Daniel chapter 2. You might remember that dream is that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had this great dream of a great image of great empires. And so David, or Daniel, excuse me, gives him the dream, gives him what that dream means. And in the end is there's this big uh, uh, idol that is made of different materials, iron, steel, the end, the feet are made of clay. It says that there would be a great stone that would come from heaven and that it will fall on this great um, statue and tear it down and break it down. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. What is that stone? It's Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is growing as each heart submits to him. And I pray today, have you submitted to the kingdom of God? Have you accepted Jesus Christ? Are you kissing the sun? Are you embracing the stone? If so, then he is making you a citizen, a child of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is forever. And all those that accept Christ are his citizens. One day, Jesus will restore the faithful in Israel and unite his kingdom and finalize the promises given to them. I just want to end with this. As now the Gentiles, as you and I are Gentiles, we now get to receive the kingdom. But one day there will be a time when he will give it back and unite Israel with it. So Israel is not lost forever. Until that day, you and I must be faithful in proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom calling our family, our friends, our loved ones, those in our sphere of influence, our community, our neighbors, to please accept the Son. For God owns all things, and he sends his Son so that we may become his children. Let me close with Romans chapter 11. I, think, I believe it may be on here. Yeah, thank you, Ben. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Right now, there is a partial hardness come upon Israel. Jesus is a stumbling block. That's a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's what's going on right now during this church age. You and I are coming in to the kingdom of God. It says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant then when I take away their sins. It has been judged. They have been rejected themselves and replaced. But one day, God will bring us all together into that new earth. Amen? And that's what you and I rejoice in. So my encouragement today is do not reject the stone, but embrace or encourage others not only to embrace it, but to live out the commands of that king. There we had Valerie. I close. The worship team comes up. Just take a moment to pause. Consider what we shared this parable. For in the same way as the Pharisees were called to respond, you and I are called to respond. Are you responding 
positively to the ministry and the call of Christ to repent, confess your sins, to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow him. If not, then I would call you to recommit this morning. If you've never done that, then I would call that you to do so today, that you may be hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit, confess your sin and turn towards him. And for those of us that are mediating, that are working the garden, that are working the vineyard till Christ comes and the owner comes, then let us be busy in being faithful stewards that we may be producing the fruit that God has called us to do. Amen? Father, we just thank you for this time. I thank you for your goodness for us. I thank you for this parable. I pray that you would help us to understand it in its fullness. And in it, Lord, that we would check our heart. Is there a way in which we're rejecting the identity, the ministry, the teachings of Christ? Are there ways in which I'm unloving, unkind? Father, are there ways in which I am allowing jealousy or greed or covetousness to rule my life? Are there ways in which I I accept a little bit of what Jesus says, but to be honest, there's much more that we're rejecting. If so, convict our hearts. Lord, that we may be loving and kind. Lord, that we may be embracing and kissing the Son. And that we may share with others, do not reject Jesus. He's more than just a good moral man. He's more than just a moral example. He's the very Son of God sent that we may have life. Father, I thank you for the opportunities you've given us. I thank you for our men's retreat. What a wonderful uh, time we had on Friday and Saturday. I thank you for the wives who, who, who allowed their men to go. Maybe allow is not the right word, but you know, made it available to them to go and to be encouraged. And I pray that our men now will, will stand up and be men of courage, be men who are, who are loving and kind with a biblical man, uh, man, uh, man, man, uh, manhood or, or uh, demeanor that pleases you and honors you. Father, I thank you for our missionaries that we've been able to support. Father, I pray that you just be with them, be with their ministries. Father, again, we lift up our country, lift up the the politics, the culture. Many times we complain, but Father, we want to know that you are in control and with it, Lord, we have a, a reason for the hope. It doesn't matter how dark it gets around us, there's always light. And Lord, let us be courageous and bold in standing up for the light in the areas of influence you've given us, whether it's at school, whether it's at a clinic, Lord, whether it's at a a job site, whatever it may be, Lord, that we live out the kingdom that's within our hearts. We pray this for your glory and our good. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.